Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. My name's Toby Young, and I'm one of Quillette's London-based editors. Uh, today, I'll be talking to Eric Kaufman, a professor of politics at Birkbeck College at the University of London, and the author of White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities, which came out both here in the UK and in the US last year, and no doubt elsewhere too. Um, Eric, you've written a an essay for um, the most, uh, well, you wrote it earlier this week uh, for Colette, uh, called The Great Awakening and the Second American Revolution. Um, do you want to just briefly summarise what your thesis in that essay is for us? Sure, Toby. Yeah, so basically I, um, partly with the, the help of some survey work that I did, I was basically arguing that the drive for cultural equality uh, is leading to an upending, if you like, uh, of various traditions of American nationhood. Uh, and these cultural traditions include things like statues, the writing of history. Um, it includes place names uh, and, and also the way the national identity is articulated. And all of that, uh, which we see very much um, from a lot of the what I would consider culturally revolutionary activity around statue toppling that's come in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and that this is very much on the ascendant. This this mood of kind of cultural iconoclasm, uh, and I was kind of interested, really quite by accident, in in the lengths to which um, particularly left wing Americans were willing to go uh, to to remake the culture. I mean, to what extent uh, were they attached to these traditions of nationhood, including uh, even the name United States of America, even the anthem, um, even uh, something like uh, parks and the architecture of, of historic buildings? To what extent would they be willing to see those fall, to, to have the culture more or less scrubbed out and erased and replaced with something completely new? in the name of cultural equality. And so really that contrast, the, 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 the tension between this utopian cultural revolutionary egalitarianism, which is energized right now, and uh, traditional American cultural nationhood is, is one that I wanted to explore, uh, partly through the use of this survey data, which really returned quite, to my mind, quite astounding results, because I almost designed this as a bit of a a hoax just to see how far people would actually go in, 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 in agreeing to some of these changes. And I was really surprised to see that um, quite a number of them, in fact, six of the questions of the 16 that I asked had majority support amongst um, liberals in the data. Do you want to just, um, we'll get on to the survey in due course and discuss your methodology and your findings in more detail. But do you just want to give us a teaser? Like what was the most startling, the most shocking finding of your survey? Well, there are a number of them, but one of them, I mean, if you think about a, 
you know, those on the left of the political spectrum, you've got center left and far left, if you like. Um, in my survey, approximately 40% of those who said they were liberal fell into the very liberal category. Um, and amongst very liberals, um, almost 60% said that they would like to see Mount Rushmore uh, removed, which is a sort of monument in North Dakota, or is it South Dakota, to four American presidents. And um, that this would be, uh, you know, that they advocated the removal of Mount Rushmore, which I thought was was really surprising, uh, to say the least. Um, that was one very surprising thing. Another was 80%, you know, 70%, and this is excluding those who, who weren't sure of their of their view, but amongst those who had a view, uh, 70% of, of American liberals, that's not far liberals, that's all uh, liberals in this data set, uh, were in favor of changing the national anthem. Uh, now, it is important to note that this uh, sample is is not a, a national representative sample. It skews young. It is heavily white. But still, these results show us that uh, the number of people who would resist uh, a proposal to, to make radical changes, such as the national anthem, to the national anthem or removing Mount Rushmore, is not particularly high amongst liberals. And so these changes become... Uh, ones that we can envision. And, and now, to, to be absolutely radical, another one that I asked was whether people would go for uh, changing the name of the United States. And here, amongst those who had a view, uh, 41% of the very liberal uh, population said that they were uh, in favor of changing the name United States of America, which is again, got to be one of the more surprising findings. I didn't expect it to be quite that high. I have to say, when I read um, some of your findings, um, my jaw was on the floor. It astonished me to discover how little attachment there is uh, amongst liberals in general, but particularly the people you or the people who describe themselves as very liberal to things like Mount Rushmore and the name the United States of America and the national anthem. But um, perhaps I shouldn't have been as shocked as I was because. Yesterday, as I'm sure you know, the California state legislature voted to remove the following words from California's constitution, quote, the state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group on the basis of race, sex, colour, ethnicity or national origin, unquote. Um, I would have thought that that would have been... Um, a passage in California's state constitution that commanded majority support across the political spectrum, but apparently not. Were you surprised by that? Not really, because the this drive for radical cultural egalitarianism um, really is paramount, I, I think, for liberals. And so with that framework in mind of oppressor versus oppressed, that then trumps something like equal treatment under the law in the eyes of progressives, right? So in the in my survey, for example, you saw something like 70% of those who had a view amongst liberals favoring um, changing the American Constitution. Um, and, and, and that's, I think, reflective of this idea that diversity and equality-based, uh, that, that lens on the world is uh, paramount in the minds of, of, of many American liberals and Trump's considerations of, for example, cultural heritage. Um, and it's that sort of uh, elevation of this, this universalist ideology over the idea of conserving the particular, the distinctive heritage that binds generations that I find to be in, in, in some ways the most disturbing element of this. And 
leads to similarities between phenomena such as the Chinese, the Cultural Revolution in China, where there was a similar attempt to kind of erase the past, which was the view was that if you erase the past, you can get rid of the power hierarchies that are supposedly associated with that culture, even though there's no actual evidence that that's the case. Um, so you can you can actually get acts of, in a way, cultural vandalism that can occur out of this. And, and similarly with um, Islamic fundamentalism, this, this term that Olivier Roy uses called deculturation, where the aim is to extract a purified fundamental Islam, principles only, removing all poetry and shrines and, and cultural distinctiveness that mark uh, Islam from place to place, but ironing it out into something uniform. And that, that same sort of urge to level particularity in the name of the universal, I think, characterizes uh, the present moment. It, it, there's a kind of um, curious paradox, though. I mean, you talk about um, the erasure of um, uh, distinctive national characteristics um, and their replacement with a kind of universalist, hyper-liberal agenda or hyper-liberal universalist principles. Um, and yet, surely the principle enshrined in that passage, the principle of equal treatment, um, is a universalist one. And it's being jettisoned in favour of something more particularist, isn't it? Saying that actually people should be treated differently according to the colour of their skin. Uh, isn't that the replacement of a universal principle with something more distinctive? Well, I think it's the replacement of one universal principle with another universal principle, which is equality of equal treatment leading to potentially unequal outcomes being replaced with um, unequal treatment on the basis of race or whatever, leading, in their view, towards some kind of equality of outcomes. So it's equality of outcome instead of equality of treatment. My my article was not so much focused on that, that kind of shift as it was um, elements of particular culture traditions uh, and, and erasing those in order to achieve a perfect society. Um, and in that sense, really, it is the universal that is ironing out the particular. Um, and, and so that's really the sense in which my article is very much about the erosion, in a way, of, of American distinctiveness. This idea that you might still have a country, it might be called something else, and, and, of course, I also asked whether people would be okay with the language changing. Now, of course, most liberals did not go for that. But this idea that you can empty out the content of a country and just keep the shell um, is something that, you know, in a way, I'm I'm sort of very much opposed to. I, I like the idea of different national cultures maintaining distinctiveness and, and heritage and so on. Um, and so I was exploring this idea of whether, in fact, we need some kind of a cultural nationalism to try and... Uh, protect or conserve, if you like, some of the, the, the content. Now, of course, it can't be frozen in aspect, but this, this idea of wanting to preserve not just the vessel, but also some of that cultural content uh, for future generations. You refer um, throughout the essay to left modernist ideology. And I think I'm right in thinking that the phrase left modernism um, is, is, is yours. Um, and I know we've discussed this before, but your view is very much that what people describe as wokeism, the intersectionality cult, social justice activism, is not a new radical ideology, um, a kind of new version of neo-Marxism, rocket-fueled by postmodernism, but actually 
just the latest manifestation of a political and ideological um, uh, tradition which dates back at least to the 1950s and probably earlier. Do you want to just elaborate on that? Yeah, I think that there's a tendency somehow for people to think in terms of the old left and right uh, socialism versus capitalism. And I don't think that's particularly useful for understanding the ideology we're in now, which is uh, really a distinct blend of two things. One is actually uh, comes from the liberal tradition, which is a kind of individualist anarchism, anti-traditionalism. And, and you don't actually need concepts of equality and socialism to get to that kind of anti-traditionalism. And, and we see that in, for example, in modern art, uh, and that's coming in in the late 19th, early 20th century. But then we also have uh, a cultural transposition of Marxism, this this idea of, well, it's no longer the, the, the proletariat as the oppressed and the bourgeoisie, or to use Maoist terms, capitalist rotors, uh, as the oppressor class. But the oppressor is now let's say white male and the oppressed would be people of color or, or so on. So, so this is a, these are new sets of categories that have been interpolated in. But using that same oppressor-oppressed uh, lens on history, and if you take that lens, it's a bit like, you know, if you come at everything with the racist hammer, everything looks like a nail, um, and, and all of the complexity fades away to this very simplistic dimension. And so it's that ideology that's really a blend of individualist anarchism, if you go way back, and um, a cultural form of socialism. These two things came together in a strong way in the 60s and have sort of formed this compound, which is now permeated and developed. And of course, each generation will try and take it to the next level. So we see new innovations, such as the trans issue. We may see ableism and other sorts of forms also coming in. But, in, but this is primarily a kind of cultural form based on cultural categories, as opposed to the older uh, Marxism, which was based on economic categories of, of the workers and, and the capitalists. Um, in your essay, one passage jumped out when I was reading it, which is, um, I'll quote, is a white woman wearing a Chinese prom dress complimenting or insulting the Chinese? Most Chinese would probably take the former view but a left modernist ideological entrepreneur can spin this as cultural appropriation and white colonialism. So it was the phrase left modernist ideological entrepreneur that jumped out in that quote to me. Uh, and it suggests, as well as your use of the word spin, that there's a degree of bad faith, um, that there are some bad actors in this movement, that when they express outrage about something like... Um, a, 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 a Caucasian girl of European ancestry wearing a Chinese dress to a prom. When people express outrage about that, there's something insincere about it, that actually it's faux outrage in service of a political agenda. Do you want to elaborate on that, that, that concept of ideological entrepreneurs, people who are uh, spinning things in order to advance an agenda, perhaps even promote themselves, enrich themselves in some way, um, and aren't completely sincere. Yeah, I mean, this is something we see, we've seen in the past, we saw it in the Cultural Revolution in China as well, where um, people were being accused of, of being capitalist rotors, even though they clearly weren't, that there is merit in being an accuser, uh, or, or accusing someone of being a witch. Um, that because you're referencing a sacred value, you are automatically on the moral high ground, and the other, the accused, is automatically on the low ground. I mean, part of the point there 
is that concepts such as, if we take the present, concepts such as harm or racism, racist, for example, um, and the emotions that underlie them, there is a, a large element to to extent to which that's constructed ideologically and socially. So the harm, to the point where the harm somebody actually feels um, is socially constructed to some extent, right? So then this is, the, this is the idea behind the sociology of emotions, that what should a Chinese person feel when watching a white person wear a prom dress? Uh, should they be outraged or should they be have pride? Now, I would suggest that the standard uh, response would be pride, but if you if you load the software of left modernism into your brain, then suddenly you you interpret that as being outrageous. So that's just to show how, depending on the software you have, your emotion, the emotion that you feel, it can be 180 degrees difference. And this is really where um, a lot of the, the wheels come off. This whole safety debate and harm, which is sort of the the legitimating tool for essentially cowing people into submission and canceling people, that this is highly constructed. It is not automatic that words are harmful, but actually that's something that somebody has been sensitized to and primed ideologically for. Uh, and so really it is dishonest in the sense that it is always seeking the most uncharitable interpretation of somebody's words. Um, but this also gets down to the, to the notion that in fact, uh, when people say, oh, well, um, you know, these, these left modernist equity diversity ideas are really all about, um, you know, helping people who are weak and, and who have been harmed and offended. Well, part of the issue here is that you are actually creating and inculcating that sense of offense. Uh, so it is not some sort of a priori uh, innocent um, response. Now, of course, there are things which are probably going to be offensive across all cultures and time periods. Uh, clearly, um, so it's it's not to say that it's all social construction, but there is a an element, a strong element of this ideological construction, which does, I think, need to be recognised. That's interesting because it it sounds there as though um, traces of postmodernism um, are finding their way into your analysis. Um, that one of the reasons these ideological entrepreneurs have been so successful is because they've uh, somehow shaped people's perception of reality so that it favours their political agenda. They've somehow induced vast swathes of people to download this mental software, which predisposes them to perceiving reality in a way that advances the cause of the left modernist political agenda. But isn't that to concede a little too much to you know, postmodernist critics of epistemological realism. Surely reality is just reality, isn't it? Well, no, it actually, I, 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 and this is where it's important to have the shades of gray rather than, so I say, you know, you can't go into the U.S. and tell people they're all Russians and suddenly they'll believe it. Um, so there are definite limits to social construction uh, and, and similarly the idea that gravity doesn't exist, you know. So clearly there are limits to social construction, but there's also a sphere in which uh, there is malleability, and and even with regard to uh, the lies that were told in the Cultural Revolution, you know, or or under the Soviet system or the Nazi system, you know, you had some people who actually believed what Chairman Mao was saying, believed that these people were capitalist rotors, and then you had people who were skeptical. Um, so there is a, a certain amount of scope for uh, 
social constructions. And, and that's partly where, and in fact, psychological experiments will often show this. If you, if you show people, uh, I don't know, a picture of something scary, then, then their response to questions uh, might change. So you have uh, some malleability, and I think that's, that is important when it comes to certainly what people perceive. Uh, you know, do they perceive things to be racist or not? Uh, there is a, a degree to which that uh, can be shaped by the software that people download. And if, if they download the critical race theory or the, or the left modernist software, then, then they are going to be far more predisposed to seeing racism everywhere um, than if they download the resilience software. Now, of course, that doesn't mean even if you have that kind of resilience software that you know, something that's clearly racist is going to be clearly racist. So, uh, you know, um, the issue is that there is scope for this Without going the full distance to postmodernism, we can allow that, yes, uh, there are framing effects. This, which, these are all empirically documented in psychology, so it's different from meta-theorizing, which you see in postmodernism. But just to say that there is a degree to which our reality is, is socially constructed, uh, particularly in the cultural dimension. Okay. Um, just want to return briefly to um, something you've already referred to, which is what is behind um, the toppling of statues, um, the rewriting of history, the renaming of places and institutions and so forth. In your essay, you refer to this uh, to, uh, you, you compare this to um, uh, the attempt to sever people's links with the past and in particular their cultural heritage um, in the various republics that comprised the Soviet Union in Cambodia during the time of the Khmer Rouge. You you say, you sort of um, analyse it in terms of uh, trying to kind of wash away um, the uh, sins staining people's souls to return them to a kind of state of purity by severing their connection with this kind of toxic history um, and, to, and to start again at year zero to use the Khmer Rouge term. Um, but isn't there also something else going on? Because it's it's not just about severing people's connection with the past, which renders them more vulnerable to kind of manipulation by ideological entrepreneurs. Isn't it also about replacing one version of the past with another as part of this kind of uh, creating a new reality project? Because uh, after all, they don't just want to leave the plinths empty. They want to replace the statues of George Washington even Abraham Lincoln, uh, with other kind of, um, uh, they want to sacralize others in their place. So it's almost as though they want to replace one version of the past with another version, the 1619 version, um, rather than just erase the past altogether. And of course, the two aren't, you know, necessarily different. But, but there seems to be something slightly more complex going on than just simply wanting to start again from year zero. It's like, let's start again from minus 200. It'll just be a different minus 200 to the one we've we've been operating with. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's it's about present ideological dictates uh, adopting a different usable past. Um, now, I guess the question is, to, to the extent that the, the past is, is the slave of the present, that's a different way of looking at the world than one in which there is kind of an organic past which people have imbibed over, over through tradition over generations, which Yes, changes, but also you have the continuity over of, of interpretation over generations. That's something quite different from where you start with the ideology and you select amongst 
the different symbolic resources and layers of the past and construct something completely new. Um, but yes, of course, there's always a, a battle over the past. You know, even in you know in Britain, you had the Whigs who who valued the Anglo-Saxon past, and the Tories valued the Norman past. I'm mean, going back into the 19th century. You've you've had these Slavophile and Westernizer in Russia. You know, there's always been these sort of battles over which symbols are more important and resonant, and I think that is going on as well. Um, but this statue toppling and this purification, I mean, where you are actually endangering, you know, you may be endangering very you know priceless relics or, or or things which can't be replaced i mean that's another aspect of it with the vandalism or iconoclasm aspect of it which is perhaps more disturbing um but of course you're right that ultimately this is about how you frame the past and the story and narrative you want to tell and, and an attempt to deconstruct the old narrative and, and replace it with one where there's really only one dimension which is oppressor and oppressed uh as opposed to the full complexity of of motives and of history and and things such as aesthetic excellence and and uh, economic development and other other kinds of values beyond just uh, that of egalitarianism. Um, so it it really is a kind of ideological reconstruction the the agenda which is going on and it's driven very much by that ideology where one could imagine, for example, something that was more organic in which you had past traditions constraining present traditions uh, and something that therefore binds present generations to past generations. I mean, again, there doesn't mean there's no change. It doesn't mean you don't uh, take a critical lens on things, but this is a sort of, it seems to me, a, a very uh, one-dimensional view um, of the past. We've reached the halfway point in this Quillette podcast, and it's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette, and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books, like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. I guess some people reading this essay um, might think that um, you're being excessively provocative when you compare social justice warriors to Red Guards and the anti-racist movement to um, China's cultural revolution. I mean, yeah, people are losing their livelihoods for dissenting from left modernist dogma, but they're not being imprisoned or beaten as they were during the Cultural Revolution. Um, and when you use terms like 
year zero, which suggests an analogy with the Khmer Rouge. <clears throat> that feels a little like trolling. I mean, we're a long way off people being rounded up, imprisoned and murdered, aren't we? Well, I, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, it is important to distinguish um, hard authoritarianism, if you like, with, with state resources and, and people being killed. Uh, and more of a soft authoritarianism, which which hits people's jobs and reputations primarily, which uh, reconstructs the culture. There are, of course, some victims of this uh, in terms of you know violence against the police or or downstream violence, which which um, you know, for example, in the, uh, the protests around the Black Lives Matter, uh, some of the effects of that may be felt in inner city communities for for generations. So there are material effects of this. But it's nothing like uh, the kind of Chinese Cultural Revolution, which, of course, killed, in some estimates, into the millions. Um, Okay, tell us about the survey you did. So um, I noticed that um, some people on Twitter have criticised your methodology, um, perhaps not in good faith, but there was one professor at the LSE um, who um, used quite harsh language to describe the methodology you'd use. Do you want to tell us about your methodology and, yeah. and why your survey sparked this criticism? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm very upfront on the methods in the in the article that, that this is not a, uh, you know, a national representative survey. Um, this is a sort of, these, this is using um, survey platforms like Amazon Mechanical Turk and Prolific Academic, which are used by thousands of academics, you know, regularly. So these are regularly used mainly because they cost a fraction of, of what the survey firms cost. Um, the results typically don't vary greatly from those of, of national representative surveys, uh, particularly when, when you're looking at populations such as uh, white liberals, which are heavily overrepresented in these platforms. The one area where the survey data is likely to be um, different from national averages is to do with age. So the average age um, in the survey was something like 35 for, for, for liberals, which is, is you know, maybe 10, 10 12 years uh, younger than the average in the voting population, but, but pretty average for the total population. So there is this issue of, you know, is this slanted a little bit towards younger parts of the population? And I think that's true, but it's still a useful window into, let's say, the views of a population that's averaged age 35 and that's white. Um, and, and secondly, there was, a, I think, and the other thing, too, by the way, is that in these surveys, I can do statistical controls for age education and other variables which might be underrepresented or overrepresented in, in this survey, these survey platforms. And, and even when you control for those, um, the effects of ideology on these 16 questions about what you should, t- uh, what should be t- torn down or changed. Uh, the effects are absolutely massive. So, I mean, this is statistically um, significant. And so with these platforms, even though they're not nationally representative, com- when you compare between groups such as liberals and conservatives, uh, those results are robust and are, are published regularly in academia. So I actually think that criticism is overblown. There was another criticism, really, which was that I wasn't, in- because I dropped the uh, neither agree nor disagree category, and uh, that, that that was somehow overstating the share of people who agreed with things like changing the flag. And of course, that cuts. The problem is here 
First of all, that set of categories also picking up people who don't know or just want to bypass the question. But more than that, I mean, I could have framed things even more alarmingly as, you know, only whatever, 10, 10 or 20 percent um, would oppose the changing of the Constitution, the changing of the flag, etc. So I could have actually come up with an even greater number if I wanted to state it in, in those terms. So I actually think that uh, that's not a, an especially serious uh, a charge here. I think whether the numbers are off even by 10 points either way, it's still very surprising to see these results. Um, and the point, I think, holds uh, very much. There's kind of an animus against the use of these platforms by by people who consider it that, that only the national representative samples uh, uh, really deserve merit. But I think that's that's really not, can't be the view across academia when you've got thousands and thousands of papers using these um, platforms. Um, and one of the things you did is that you um, you went back and surveyed what well, some but not all of the same people after the BLM protest movement exploded. And you found that opinion had shifted significantly to the left. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was really quite a, quite by accident because I kind of thought to run these surveys in May, early May before the protests, uh, just to explore what kind of results I would, what kind of answers I'd get. Um, and and then after the riots, I thought, well, with all the statue toppling, this is, is quite topical. It would be interesting to see uh, the kinds of shifts that have occurred. And, I mean, you could have imagined any number of responses. You could imagine that people would have reacted against the statue toppling by becoming more culturally nationalist and conservative. And that's something of what we saw in the 60s uh, after the after the riots then. But in fact, what we see, and this is what's quite surprising, is if anything, the, the statue toppling and all the rioting that's come in the wake uh, of the George, George Floyd killing uh, has led to a, a liberalization and, and, and greater support for these kind of cultural revolutionary ideas. And so the av- if you take those 16 questions I asked uh, across everything from anthems to changing the name of the country and, and, and uh, changing the layout of roads and everything, um, the average actually shifted in a liberal direction by uh, 0.6 uh, of a scale point out of five, and that's actually a very large and statistically significant change. From so, in a way, a shift from neither agree nor disagree to something closer to agree. Uh, and so, really, what I was saying here was, instead of actually these events causing people to be more uh, protective of their culture, they it seems to have actually pushed them in the other direction, which may indicate that the U.S. is on the cusp of adopting some of these quite radical policies. And, and, and this is sort of partly where I say, in a way, the, the conservative side on the, on the right, if it cares about these um, traditions, is going to have to start mounting a more effective campaign for hearts and minds to try and, and to, you know, to, to try and, and win support for trying to defend these things, uh, which I don't think it's done very effectively at all. So yet your conclusion is that unless there's a counter-revolution based on what you call cultural nationalism, which we'll come to in a moment, the left modernists will succeed in remaking America in some way that um, conservatives won't like. Um, uh, but isn't there a third alternative, which is that you know an even more populist right-wing leader than Trump will emerge, win a presidential election, and then plunge the country into civil war 
or something approximating civil war. So your analysis suggests that there's a coherent political response to the assault on America's values and institutions. And if 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 the counter-revolutionary path you lay out isn't followed, then the left modernists will prevail. But to a great extent, isn't it a battle that's being waged? It isn't a battle that, that's being waged through conventional political channels. I mean, it's much less organised than that, with no conventional political leaders, or at least not many, uh, on either side of the culture war. And doesn't that mean it's more likely to descend into something much more chaotic um, and um, uh, undecided than a, than a new political settlement, whether it's a left modernist or a culturally nationalist one? Yeah, I think that's right in the sense that there will be a remnant or a rump that will um, resist these changes, uh, even if they are successful. And, and it really does look like there is growing support for this and, and Trump's decline in popularity after the, after the riots, and which is not just COVID-related, does indicate that, I mean, I think that the forces of left modernism have the upper hand right now, and this gives them a fairly good chance of being able to get some of their policies through. Um, now, the scenario you talk about in which um, a new populist, I'm not sure that the support base is strong enough for that. Um, and, and just looking at my data, I, I think clearly conservatives are opposed to these changes. But if you look at the overall polling, say, in the U.S., uh, I don't think that favors um, the rise of a populist. But what it would, what might happen is that left modernists will gain control and start to implement these radical ideas. There won't be really... The question is what the outlet will be for resistance to that. One possibility is you get a polarization geographically. So you get the cultural revolution in the blue states and the blue cities and so on, and you get a, a, a kind of a, a resistance to that outside. I use the analogy of Northern Ireland, where uh, in unionist Protestant areas, you've got the red, white, and blue curbstones and iconography. And in the nationalist or Catholic areas, you've got the uh, orange, green, and, and white uh, iconography uh, of the Irish flag. That, that maybe this kind of a sort of fragmented geography uh, might emerge. Uh, whether that expresses, I still don't. I, I still don't believe that's going to lead to civil war. But it might lead, for example, to the Senate becoming the site for conservative America to to, to frustrate the executive and vote against everything uh, they can from the Democratic president. It might be that the state houses, particularly in the um, at the interior of the country and parts of the South, will uh, more or less try and, and work against the federal government and demonize the federal government. Um, so, so it's likely, I think, to lead to a kind of polarization. Um, I'm still not sure that there's going to be – I'm not as partial to the Civil War interpretation. I think you may get an increase in some far-right terrorist activity. You tend to get that when uh, – you know, as populism – reduces, you tend to get slightly, because it doesn't have a political expression, then it sometimes has an increased expression in terms of street violence. I don't think that will be a large-scale phenomenon, but I do think we're, we're heading towards more polarization, uh, even though I do think that the, the, the trend seems to be at the moment for left modernism and cultural revolution to, to have the upper hand. Isn't the fact that... Um the left modernists in their current incarnation aren't organised in a political party, something which makes their chances of politically succeeding in the way you are warning about less likely. I mean, you can understand, you can see why a revolutionary movement 
uh, led by a party uh, would be uh, would pose a real threat to the status quo, partly because you have someone dictating strategy from the top and you have a degree of discipline all the way down to the um, foot soldiers. Um, but with a, with a kind of more disorganized, amorphous, progressive political movement like the one we're seeing in America right now, um, there's something unstable and febrile about it. And without um, you know, the equivalent of a holy see, without a Lenin figure, being able to impose a line and make sure it's adhered to, uh, you find, you know, um, it's it's too disorganised. Uh, it isn't disciplined enough to really achieve much politically. Um, and uh, and, and one, one characteristic of this present manifestation of left modernism is that um, uh, they seem intent more on hunting down apostates within their own ranks than heretics outside those ranks. Um, and uh, for all the people they cancel on the right, you know, they're outnumbered by the people on the left that are constantly being cancelled. People who express fealty, for instance, to BLM, but do it in a way which is deemed to be insufficiently humble or sincere, and so immediately get whacked. Uh, but you see this kind of internal infighting, and it happens, you know, as the line is constantly shifting, people who are on the right side of it within the movement one day find themselves on the wrong side of it the next. And it feels too chaotic, too febrile, too disorganised to pose the kind of political threat that you are crediting it with. Is, is, don't you think that it, 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 it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause a huge amount of damage, undoubtedly, and um, maybe do things like persuade people like the... Uh, state representatives in the Californian Congress to change the constitution, but it isn't it, because it's politically disorganised. Because there isn't a party, a vanguard. Because there's no Lenin figure. How how dangerous is it really? Well, I don't think part of what I talk about in the book is something called complexity theory, which argues that uh, you can get very effective structures emerging from below, from the uncoordinated actions of individuals. So a flock of birds, for example, doesn't have a lead bird, uh, but acts in, in an evolutionarily successful way. A, a market, um, similarly, is, is everyone has their own supply of things that they can supply to the market and things that they value, demand from the market. Um, and something very efficient comes out of that. And I think similarly with, um, when it comes to left modernism, if you have a series of uncoordinated actors, but they are penetrating institutions, say um, universities, corporations, uh, government agencies, and so on, um, reinforcing norms. So norms, again, are a kind of complex system. Why do we shake hands in the West rather than bow? That's not really enforced uh, by any sort of central government. And I think similarly with norms of political correctness, this is they're very much relying on um, herding and conformity uh, and, and these sorts of normative sanctions around taboo, taboo violation. Um, and that can be very effective uh, in disciplining. It's like birds who stray from the flock, you know. So it is, you can have this leaderless form of political organization, which can be extremely effective. And, and I actually think that's what we're seeing here is, is now, of course, there is the Democratic Party and the Labour Party and so on, and particularly in the in the Democrats. Um, yes, by people like Biden and to some extent Sanders, who are more old school, uh, less affected by this. However, once they're in office, 
it's not clear that they're going to be able to resist some of the demands um, of, of left modernism, particularly because they've weaponized social norms, created taboos where if you find yourself on the wrong side of this and a mob comes up, you may not be able to resist the charge of being a heretic. Uh, and, and this is the effectiveness, really, of using these uh, emergent complex mechanisms. Um, and, and one of the reasons why, uh, like with these protests, it's not necessarily coordinated, but everybody has the software downloaded. Uh, and even though some people may get canceled who, who you know, were true believers, as long as the common enemy looms larger than these subdivisions, uh, I still think the, the movement will continue to progress. I mean, we see kind of similar versions of this in, you know, in, in Islamic fundamentalism or in, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just trying to think of some other examples. Well, another would be ultra-Orthodox Judaism, where you have all these different rabbis competing, different doctrines, but yet out of it, the ultra-Orthodox are still a rising force uh, and still getting their demands met. Because the fact that you have these splits doesn't necessarily signify weakness, um, as long as most of the people are consumed with the common enemy. So I still think uh, that this is this is a sort of juggernaut that's that's increasing its power within society and will eventually be able to uh, shape the content, for example, of the the, the offer uh, that the Democrats make to the public. Okay, um, so finally, let's just touch on what you mean by cultural nationalism. Um, I guess for um, some uh, oversensitive readers, this might be a kind of boo phrase. They think you're referring to, you know, um, Hungarian or Polish populism. Um, and cultural nationalism often takes populist, right-wing, authoritarian forms. And you actually single out um, the... the um, uh, uh, Protestants of Ulster as sort of role models in this regard, but and you describe them, I think, as for the most part secular liberals. But that's certainly not the that's not the common conception of them, which is of fairly <laughs> doggedly conservative defenders of traditions, which includes being anti-abortion and being hostile to same-sex marriage. Um, so, do you want to just flesh out what you mean by cultural nationalism and tell us why liberals shouldn't shouldn't recoil from that phrase? Yeah, I mean, I like like a lot of these things. There's a spectrum, and and any any idea taken to an extreme, it clearly leads to undesirable consequences. Whether that's left modernism, whether that's uh, cultural nationalism, a certain amount of each is is is, is probably a good thing. Um, in the case of cultural nationalism, I mean, I'm talking very much about the education, the content of history, um, vernacular, architecture, and culture, literature, uh, media, and so on. Uh, that really what I'm sort of calling for is that if those who want to protect these traditional forms of culture are going to have to get engaged in those realms of society. Whereas I think the uh, political nationalism that we've seen on the right thus far in the West has very much been focused on, on economics and foreign policy problems. Uh, to the extent it's focused on culture, it's been in a universalist register. Um, so the religious right, for example, um, and which, by the way, was focused on try to capture school boards um, and, and, you know, get rid of teaching evolution and so on. Uh, so, which is, of course, not something I'd favor. But I think in the case of Northern Ireland, the, the reason I just use this as an example is this is a sort of group on the wrong side of history that, you know, has a history of discrimination against Catholics. And, and so clearly there's a negative part of, of its history. It's 
Uh, it is quite conservative in many ways, uh, but the socially cons the social conservatism is um, is is concentrated really only in a sort of minority of of, of this group, which is the Free Presbyterian minority. And actually, generally, if you go to uh, Belfast or or if you go to Unionist areas, I mean, people are le leading pretty secular lives and. and are more are fairly socially liberal, so I think the stereotype is is not particularly right. But just the idea—it's more about just seeing how they do preserve their culture in terms of taking care of monuments, and um, they have education and, and historical committees that are in charge of uh, finding stories about the community um, and, and narrating those and, and keeping those alive. Now, of course, there's always a balance. You again, you don't want to sort of focus on this to the exclusion of, it, of everything else, you need to have some opening for change in modern culture and that. So I'm not by any means um, arguing for something rigid, but but equally, I think those who um, who do value their national particularity, uh, what I'm saying is that, that, that they will need to start to get involved in, in questions such as which school textbooks, uh, you know, what are the content of those books? What are they going to feature? Again, without going down a completely hidebound route, just simply to sort of uh, push back against something that would sort of center uh, an oppressor-oppressed narrative as the only real lens for looking at history to say, well, okay, that is one lens, and we're going to keep that lens because we have to have self-criticism, but we're also going to look at lenses that, that might, for example, consider uh, economic development, uh, you know, uh, high politics, other aspects of, of culture. And so that, in a way, this cultural nationalism is more about saying, if you really want to preserve this, then you're going to have to uh, get engaged in cultural questions, whereas I think conservatives have been much more comfortable uh, spending their time on, uh, as I say, things like foreign policy, you know, uh, military might, economic progress and might, and so on, which which are very quantitative rather than particularistic and qualitative. So it's more of a plea to pay some attention to some of these qualitative registers. Okay, well, Eric Kaufman, thank you very much for talking to Quillette. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.